I know, I know, everybody is doing a podcast right now, aren't they? But we promise this one has been in the pipeline for a little while. Our favourite restaurants may be closed for now, but there's nothing better than a magnificent meal accompanied with a nice glass of something. Obviously, tasty tidbits, testing questions and some useful tips for you at home. There's plenty of food for thought here. This is Source Material. Yes, welcome to Source Material, the podcast that mixes fine folk with fine dining, speaking to some of the countries and in fact the world's most talented and respected chefs. My name is Rob Jones, I'm a broadcaster but once upon a time worked as a chef until I decided to swap a life of unsociable hours and working weekends for journalism, a life of unsociable hours and working weekends. I left the trade but very much kept a love and passion for gastronomic excellence and this is my and your opportunity to find out lots more about the people that produce it. We want to learn a bit, we want to have plenty of fun as well. And it's a special one to start off with, the only Michelin star head chef that I can say I've had the pleasure of working alongside. And to say I can take 1% of the credit for success would be overdoing it massively. It's a big welcome to Rob Palmer, the man in charge of Hampton Manor in the West Midlands. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right, this is the moment where you say, no, you had a big part in my career, I've got you to thank. You're the best. Nah. <laughs> or not. Or not. Um, or look, not, there's, yeah. there's loads of stuff we're going to talk about over, over the course of the podcast, but I mean, we have to start with, with life under lockdown, I guess you'd call it. I mean, take me back to, to when the sort of measures started to be brought in and, and how you saw it from a, from a head chef's perspective of a restaurant. Firstly, it was, um, it was heartbreaking because we made a decision that the covers each each night and that week before were just disappearing in front of us. And we was like, and we knew something bad was going to happen. So we made the decision before the lockdown sort of hitting on the, I think on the Friday hitting like properly. Um, we we made a decision to close for three months anyway, because it was affecting us so badly. And we actually made all our staff redundant and or um, laid them off. And then we worked the rest of the week, we got a few things done. And then on the Friday, thankfully, the government come up with a solution and we managed to furlough everybody. And so everybody still kept their jobs. But before that, it was just a horrible week having to tell people that we're closed for three months and potentially you've not got a job at the end of them three months, depending on what happens. And then on that Friday afternoon, the government sort of bowed everybody out and helped us out a bit. But it's still... It's still been a difficult period. We've we've changed a few things and we're doing a delivery service where we're doing up to this week we've got two hundred and fifty covers booked over the weekend that we're delivering food to. Um but to start with I was on my own doing it for the first couple of weeks. So it's been really difficult, really hard work. Um So actually harder just, than now you're a head chef, obviously when you're in a service you just stand at the end of the pass and, and tell other people to do stuff right, but now you've actually got to go back to do some cooking yourself. Yeah. Now I've got to go back to doing some graft there. Um, <laughs> but it's been, it's been challenging and sort of frustrating at times because suppliers aren't hard to get hold of and you're limited to what you, th- you can do because you're delivering it in a box and you've got to rely on the guests to heat it up themselves and not mess that up. But So we're giving them brief instructions and every, the feedback's been amazing, to be fair. So it's going well. I've managed, we've got busier over the few weeks, so I've managed to bring a couple of lads back to help me out a little bit. Uh, but it's, it's it's challenging times, but we're getting through it and we're trying to do some charitable things at the same time. So, 
Talking of those charitable things, from, from what I understand, one of your regular customers came in once he realised that, that a lot of staff from, from Hampton Manor had been laid off and offered everyone a job. Is that right? Yeah, so Aldi, the supermarket, they've been coming to us for... Well, I've been here 10 years and they've been coming to us all, them, all that time to hold their sort of senior management or directors even uh, conferences sort of every couple of months. So it's five or six times a year they're with us. And they, one of, one of them lives in the village of Hampton in Arden and uh, he sort of put an olive branch out and offered um, all of our staff jobs at Aldi because obviously Aldi and supermarkets in general were just being massively hit with business. So they sort of bailed us out a little bit and offered everybody at least 10 hours a week work which potentially would have been twice that even triple that in hours um and yeah they helped so a few of our staff they've still gone on and worked for him as well a few of them are still working for it as well whilst furloughed so that was a it was a really good good gesture of them to do that let's talk about about the system as a whole then and and your role i guess now as a head chef and we, we're going to talk actually later in in a pod about the challenges you have from moving up from just being part of the brigade to being responsible for people. Do you go home and, and almost feel a little bit guilty about about people that you've had to initially lay off it, with this process? Initially, it was yeah, it was horrible. It was like I was the there was like twelve members of staff that were kept on, and then everybody else were busy. I think there's about forty five members, fifty members of full time staff, and then almost half of that again of like casual sort of zero hour contracts that we all had to tell never had a job anymore and it was and we but we were still there sort of working like, and we had we had our guaranteed salaries coming in and whatever and they were had they had nothing um, other than what a potential redundancy package which we I was only entitled to if they'd been with us for two years and a lot of them hadn't been um so it was almost like being one of a few survivors of like a crazy accident it was horrible you had, you had that guilt that the guilt was terrible not a really bad feeling um but like i say luckily the government bowed us out and sort of all their members of staff were still kept on in some form and i guess you, you've probably already been in the position where you've you've brought chefs into to hampton manor and it hasn't worked and it maybe not been up to the standard and, and you've had to it's difficult enough then to say look it's not working out we're not going to continue this but it must be very difficult when you and them and everyone who works at the restaurant has no say or no control over over what's happening. Yeah, because nobody did anything wrong. It was it's just it was just a horrible situation where we can't employ people and there's no business to sort of so every, we in that week beforehand pretty much every bit of conference business throughout the whole summer cancelled literally everything. The only thing we had left on our books was weddings and then we've had to move all of them so up until the end of june every wedding's been moved we've now started moving july's weddings and and every month after that until we know where we're where we're at we're going to keep moving them weddings so next year we're gonna have a lot of weddings through <laughs> because obviously they've all paid deposits and they've all sort of they all still want to get married they might not after another 12 months of being uh engaged but you never know but um yeah, we've got a lot of weddings to get through 
Final point then in terms of, of the coronavirus and, and the effects of all that. Um, the, the, the Peels on Wheels service, which, which you've introduced, which is basically you and now a couple of other chefs prepping stuff that, that go out to people's homes, that the menu itself looks great. Was that your decision? Was that a decision sort of made above your head to say we're going to carry on offering a service of sorts? I think it was both. So the directors were keen to do something and I was keen to do something to, to stay in the loop because if you just leave it and come back in four months time, you sort of, you've lost some customers, you might have lost customers where we're still very much in the public eye. It's selling out in minutes every week. Like last week we sold 220 in four minutes on Saturday. So we sold out within four minutes on Saturday night for this following weekend coming there. So it's so, it's really popular. And then every, as soon as it sells out, we've got, inundated with emails saying can we get some can we get some and it's like we've sold out sorry it's like it's like trying to get tickets for Anthony Joshua boxing, boxing <laughs> you just but, compared uh, yourself to Anthony Joshua that's, that's a big yeah, well, just <laughs> but it's, it's selling out that quickly it's crazy like, we didn't expect it to be we expected it to be popular and to sell out but not in the time frame it is selling out but every every delivery that we do we're, we're delivering we're then delivering a meal to a vulnerable person or to NHS like I was doing so last week I did 200 meals for for a charity that's based in Edgebaston I can't the name the name of the charity has disappeared out of my mind but um, so I did 200 meals for them and then I delivered 60 meals to Heartlands Hospital as well um, and that's so it, we're not making any money from it I think each meal we make about a pound of profit that's it so um, pretty, pretty much doing it just to pay my salary uh, the chef's salary a couple of chef's salaries that are working and just to keep our keep our business going, just to keep it active, and to do a few things for charity at the same time. And again, that must be great, and also quite different in a way. In that, as a chef, and, and when you have a restaurant, people choose to come there. That's the whole point of booking. You, you find yeah. a place that you want to go to, and, and every time you're serving, you're serving people who want to be there. Whereas doing something yeah. for charity, giving back a little bit is, I mean, I guess it's yeah. what everyone feels they need to be doing at this time. Well, yeah, and definitely. And it's made me think about what we do every Friday, every Saturday night now when it comes to, because we're closing on Sunday and Monday, a lot of stuff gets sort of binned, like vegetable things, like veg-based things that we know aren't going to be decent to use come Tuesday. They pretty much go in, get get wasted or go to staff food. Um, well, we, there's a, and I thought about it since, there's a lot more we could do with that moving forward. Like every Saturday night, we can, every, like, a homeless person or a person who's vulnerable in the community is going to love a bowl of soup that you can make out of a vegetable puree that you've got on your menu or whatever else is going going to waste. It's something look, moving forward when we do reopen that I'm going to carry on doing. You're listening to Source Material, available from all major podcast providers. To get in touch, use the hashtag Source Material on social media. Let's talk then about you as a, as a head chef. Uh, and I said at, at the start, looking at some of the challenges and, and coronavirus is undoubtedly one of the biggest challenges for you, one of the biggest challenges for, for everyone in any sector of life. But, you know, I knew you when you were a chef to party and you, you came in, you did your job and, and you went home and you build up to become a head chef like you are now, at a place that has a Michelin star. How do you... Prepare yourself to be a head chef. Um, 
I think it's, it's, it's obviously, it's always an ambition when you go into the industry. I think anyone that goes into a job eventually, especially in, as a chef, eventually wants to be the, the top the top boy in the team, don't you? I think it's, it's an ambition of everybody craves. Um, I think preparing yourself, it's just it, it's just a journey throughout your career. So you start every time you get a promotion, you, it comes with a little bit more significance and a little bit more weight. So when you get to sous chef, you sort of... I was actually chatting to one of the lads yesterday who, who's working with me now. He was on about my old sous chef before my current one. He was like, what, who, was, who was he and what was he like? And I was like, he was a good lad. Like, but yeah, I think as sous chef, you almost carry more, a little bit more burden than a head chef because all the... All the people come in and moan to you. So like, all the chefs will moan to the sous chef before they'll moan to the head chef because they haven't got the balls to moan to the head chef. <laughs> so they'll moan to the sous chef and the sous chef then has to come to the head chef and do a bit of moaning or what, depending on what the situation is. So I think, and then sort of I leave it, we leave it. So the sous chef does a lot more. And I think sous chef prepares you to be head chef because the, you, you have to earn, it's a big, it's a, it's a big position to fill. Because if I'm not there, he's got to step up. So nothing can change. So it's, it's yeah, I think sous chef is the main thing. And then when you do get to head chef, it is a bit of a, it's, it's I don't know, it was a bit of a whirlwind when I got it. It was a shock. So like the, the chef before me moved on pretty swiftly, um, unexpectedly. And I was just thrown into it, thrown in in the deep end, really. I had to cancel holiday and everything to sort of... You're surely not. Going away a couple, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> After, a couple of weeks later, I was going, meant to be going away and everything, and I had to cancel a holiday and things like that. And it was just like... And it is like... At first, I was a bit of a rabbit in the headlights and like you, you're running... It's not necessarily your food that you want to cook, that you're cooking. Um, so for three or four months, we won three rosettes with the previous head chef's food almost but I was sort of running the show and then after that then I think after six months you start to sort of develop your own sort of style and whatever and then the food that we do now is completely different to what we was doing when even when I first took over as head chef come back to the food in just a second but what, what about you know so much of being head chef and if you go on I don't know YouTube and you watch old Gordon Ramsay videos you know it's it's him stood there on the pass yelling at people and, and I'm sure that that is not the reality of being a head chef so you know, if you if you get a management job in in business, I guess you you go on courses where you get taught how to to interact with people, how to be a boss. Did you did you get anything like that? Did you pick that up from all the head chefs that you worked with? I think yeah, you you pick everyone. I I learned from. I think I learned more from previous head chefs' mistakes, especially the one before me. I think I learned a lot from his mistakes, and um, not so much cooking wise I learned a lot of cooking wise from it but as a leader I think I learned more from seeing their mistakes and like I said like a sous chef you get people coming and moaning to you about things probably because what the head chef's done and you think well when I'm head chef I don't want to be like that so you sort of learn I think you learn you learn on the job a lot and our directs are brilliant so if ever if I ever wanted to go on any sort of management course or anything like that I know that they'd put their hand in the pocket and send me on it but I've never had the time really to do it so <laughs> you don't and when it comes to, uh, not to, to sort of ask you to name names or anything, but in terms of, of picking out what you would describe as, as a bad head chef or aspects of a, of a head chef that makes them, them bad, what, what would that be? I think in today's world, I think like you said about Ramsey shouting at people and that, and you, you, that to, the, to an extent is still, is still in, the, in the industry, but 
I think that's gone now. I think you can't... Young kids won't react to that anymore. I think there's more of a... You have to really man-manage people now. And every every member of staff, you have to sort of treat a little bit differently. And how you do give them a telling off or how you do praise them, it's sort of... You have to treat everyone differently. And I think that's... Whereas previous head chefs was... They didn't know how to man-manage and treat deep people in the right way. And I think I've learned to sort of take everyone as an individual and treat them all as as I wanted to be treated. I didn't want to be swore at and shouted at and stuff thrown at me. And, you know, it's, like, it's not... <laughs> who wants that? Nobody wants that. If you, had, if you did that in a normal job, it, you, it, you'd get sacked, wouldn't you? So why should it be any different in a kitchen? What about the food then? And you mentioned that, that when you took over as head chef, you, you pretty quickly picked up three rosettes cooking what you described as, as someone else's food. So as a, a fairly new head chef who's looking to make his way but has those rosettes, did you ever th- see it as a bit of a gamble to go away from something that was, that was clearly successful in the eyes of inspectors? Yeah, massively, because like, you've been successful at that. But we, obviously, we was... Wanted, we was proud of the free rosettes, but we wanted more than that anyway. It was all, as soon as I got that head chef's job, I knew I wanted more. And because I'd never worked in a a rose, well, three rosetted place or a Michelin star place, I sat down with my director and he was like, "Look, we'll support you. I'll send you on a couple of stars." And I ended up going. So I was head chef, and I went on a stars to Andrew Fairley's in Scotland for a week. I went on a stars to Nathan Outlaws in Cornwall for a week, and. It's amazing how much you can learn in a, in a, when you're quite experienced already, like I was in my position. It's amazing how much you can pick up in a week just at one restaurant. Just, just simple things that you've not seen before, but you know. And so that was pressure being head chef and leaving the kitchen behind to go and work someone else. It was a bit weird, but I mean, it paid off because within two years we had four rosettes and a start, so it was hard. And that that was unexpected. The star we was expect not expecting, but we were sort of anticipating <coughs> and wanting. But when we got the letter about the four throws out, it was like we was blown away. But we wasn't we wasn't expecting it at all. But yeah, can you can you pick one of those chefs that you went up and spent some time with that had more of a profound inf- impact than anyone else? Um, knife nail or massively because he just how he treats fish is just so simple and it's like it's ridiculous like you look at it and you think it's, it's, it's hardly doing anything to the fish and hardly doing anything garnish wise it's so simple but it works and it's like I'd eaten there about a month before when I went so it was I was blown away by, by going and eating there and then to see how simple they made everything like there's literally a team of four or five four or five chefs they had a couple of stagiaires in the kitchen when I was there so and it's like and they're churning out two star food at for like 30, 40 covers every night. Two lunches. I think they did lunch Friday and Saturday and then dinner Tuesday to Saturday. And it's like, it's so simple. But he only had eight dishes on the menu, so he could keep it really simple and really clean. So yeah, Nathan Outlaw for his simplicity was was crazy. It was a lot, I've learned a lot from that. You mentioned then when you, you sort of found out that when you got the four rosettes, when you got the Michelin star. Now, me knowing you, I, I don't see you get emotional very often. I've seen you get excited, you know, when a Villa goal goes in on the radio when we're in the kitchen on a Saturday afternoon, which albeit very rare, you know, you got excited. But 
give me give me a little sense of your emotions when when you got that Michelin star. I mean, it's it's, a, it's probably a question I'll ask on every podcast to every chef we have on. But but what was it like from your perspective? Um, well, it was for us. It was the first year of them doing their launch that they do now. So everyone gets invited to the to the launch in London, and it was the first year of them hosting that. So we got our invitation via phone call or email. I think our director got it on a Thursday. Um, before the event on the Monday, so we was like, well, we must have, we must have won a staff. Um, but then obviously all that weekend, then you've been invited. You don't know that you're getting a staff back there because it was the first time of this thing. You didn't. We sort of had, we assumed, but we didn't know for definite. Then when we got there on the Monday morning, the train ride there was like director booked us on the slow train, so it's like two, nearly three hours to get the train there. It's packed on the way to London on a Monday morning. So we're nervous and we get we get to this I think it was at a Savoy house or something like that. I can't remember what, it's, what it was called, but um and we get put in this holding room. There's me, the director, and our general manager. All three of us have been invited. And this and then when we looked around the room, it was just chefs and we're like, oh, what's going on here? We've we been invited, we're not winning a star, we're winning something else. And and then this this um this, this woman from Michelin kept coming over and just talking to us and saying, oh, you'll be going on the stage first before anybody else. After, I think Claire Smythe was doing a speech, after she'd been presented with her, I think she won chef, woman's, woman's chef at the air or something like that. Um, we was going on stage, like, why are we going on stage first? And, we, and my director turned around to this woman and went, we ain't come here and just won some shitty award and we're not picking a star up. And she was like, you can't say that. And we was like, well, it, like we've come here expecting it. And then, in the end, we was in this second little holding room afterwards with nobody else. And I was like, look, you'll be going on the stage again after this. And I was like, thank God for that. Like, we're getting a star as well. But we won a, we won a service award, the first ever, na- um, I can't even think, the Michelin service award that was never been given out before. So we won that and then we won the star as well. So the, it was weird because it was hard to experience because I think all the other chefs, before that just get the guide release on that day and they look in the guide and they've got a star on the oven whereas we got we got it so it was a massive elation and you get called up on stage in front of well, I think in the front row there was Sat Baines Heston Blumenthal um, like Claude Bossy Tom Kerry so it was all there looking at you know fuck <laughs> like, these are all people we've looked up to all our career not really sort of and it's just yeah it was, it was amazing then we come back and had a Pretty wicked party on the night then, to be fair. We invited all the staff back to uh, get on it. <laughs> get on it, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Um, well, at least, you, at least you sort of sent something because you didn't go too crazy on the welcome drinks and then sort of stumbled up onto yeah. the stage. Um, the thing about getting a Michelin star, and it's, I guess, something of a parallel to the world of sport and that you get to, like, the top of a mountain and then what do you do from there? And I guess... There's potentially the worry for for the psychology of a, of a chef that you don't become intent on improving. You just become so worried about losing something you've got. Definitely, I think we always. I think our goal is to keep pushing, and you know, if we get to, if we don't get to, then so be it. But we'll we'll fight until we'll keep fighting. We won't we won't ever give up on it. But. Um, the hardest thing is evolution, like evolving, like because this, if you just keep doing what you be, what you want to start with, that's going to be dated. So you have to, you have to keep evolving. Like this, we won't. There's things that we want to start with that we'd never do now. So like, 
that was four four years ago we won the star so it's like there's certain things that I would never do that we won a star with and you're like and that's how quick food evolves and changes so you do have to keep evolving and that and that comes with and then and that can eventually turn into hopefully achieving a bit more achieving in a second star and five rosettes or whatever but you know that that's the dream is to keep pushing like never to sort of never to look over never to look back just to look forward and there is that potential you could lose it but that's up to me and to keep my team on their toes and sort of not let them not let them slip and I guess the other question you, you spoke about being at that Michelin night and seeing people like Heston Blumenthal Sat Baines and, and they're obviously sort of guys that you respect massively and, and sort of look up to but now there there will be chefs making their way in the industry who, who see you as that sort of that role model or someone that they can ask for experience what what would be the sort of key experience to get into that level of of a Michelin star in in what you do with your menu um for me it's it's just simplicity you don't mess about too much with anything we try try and keep things to three flavours on a plate that's always what I've, whatever I've told the lads that are developed, trying to develop this year is just three flavours on a plate like three main obviously there's things that you put into for seasonings and things like that that you 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 change things but three core things and that's for me that's it like never over complicate anything um, don't over manipulate ingredients like we try and look after it and treat it just treat every ingredient with the same. Like a pit, treat a carrot with the same respect as you treat a, a fillet of beef. Like it's just it might not cost as much, but it's still going to have the same impact on the plate if you look after it properly. Right, you've answered some some decent questions. You've got some even bigger ones to come. It's time for this. The burning issues. These are questions maybe that are a little bit outside of your role as a head chef, but still to do with food to a certain extent. So I'm giving you this one to start with. All our chefs are going to get these sorts of questions. What is Rob Palmer's ultimate three-course meal? I think something like langoustine or scallop as a starter. I just, they're my two favourite things to cook and eat. The prime ingredients are expensive, but anything with langoustine and scallops to start and then does it have to be like Michelin style fine dining or anything you, you choose you choose whatever you like you will be judged heavily so on just, it, but... every, every, this question gets asked a lot so it's like for me one of my favourite things is just the roast chicken a really good roast chicken with chips and mayonnaise like that's simplicity for me on a plate I'd never you wouldn't serve it in the restaurant but in our <laughs> restaurant but for me to eat, that's just one of the things that I love. And then anything chocolate for dessert. I'm a chocolate fiend, so... So just to, just to confirm, you're, as a Michelin star head chef, your final meal on this planet for the main course, you're having chicken and chips. Yeah. Strong. <laughs> Strong. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was actually something you said to me when we were chatting before we recorded the, the, the pod about one of the, the misconceptions about, about chefs, particularly chefs at the high end, yeah. is that you... You go down and, and you know, knock out some some hen of the woods or some some langoustines langoustines on toast when you get home at night, which is which is not the case. No, well, no, because I can't afford to buy, buy them things. <laughs> I'm, when I'm cooking them at at work, it's not my money I'm spending; it's the company's money. But um, yeah, it'd be lovely to be able to cook that sort of stuff at home. <laughs> it's just not practical, is it? I, when, when I cook at home, it's standard 
what everybody else cooks like eggs bag both for my dinner last night and on a Sunday I do a roast dinner and it's still it's a man of the people aren't you yeah definitely I think that's the thing most most chefs are working class people and we've come up in the industry and I think Pete, there's a there's a bit of perception sometimes of chefs that we, we go home and we've, we're lavish and eat caviar and langoustine and lobster at home as well but we definitely don't kind of right, make a bottle of beer and a Roast chicken, that's me. <laughs> Roast chicken and <laughs> chips. Right, next question we gave you is a, a dream chef table. I've sat at your chef's table. It's very nice, actually. Um, other than the fact that you occasionally send me messages saying, stop taking pictures and just eat it of the food. But other than that, <laughs> it's an excellent chef's table. So I've given you four places for people, alive or dead, to sit at your table. You can only choose one chef. Did you choose a chef? Uh, no. Uh, yeah, I did. Can't remember what I've chosen. To be honest with you. Oh god! <laughs> right, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to try and do this as we go along. Then, can can you remember who you, who you might have put in there? I think I put Ramsey in there as the one chef, so because he's like the it's just the the man in that is in Britain in cooking for the last sort of twenty years. Everyone's looked up to him, they? even though he's a shadow, he's known for being how he is. I think he's had three stars for I don't know how long now, and like. Everyone looks up to him, so yeah, he's the chef. So he's the chef, and you got three other spaces. It's got to be somewhat football related, doesn't it? I would have thought so. Yeah, I think my favourite player for, for over the years was uh, was Juan Pablo Angel for Villa. So, Great shout. Yeah, and he's proper into his food and wine and that back home. When I see him on Instagram and that, so yeah, I'd have to take, definitely give him a seat at the table. Okay, two um, more. Daniel Craig, because I'm a Bond fan. Strong. And who else? One more, is there? Yeah, one more. You. Oh, right. Sorry, kind of. Thank you very much. I think, I think you know... A, just, a for cool... the, just, for the che- just for the cheesy banter you always bring. Absolutely. Well, I'm, in you many ways... Keep the conversation uh, going. Um, all right, then. The, on the other side of the scale, kitchen nightmares, worst moments in a kitchen. Any time, any dishes you've ever tried where you've got them to the past and thought, that is awful. Why did I ever have that idea in the first place? Um... Without saying arrogant, no, because if I've had the idea, then even if it didn't work, you'd always go back and keep trying it and trying it again. I don't think there's ever been a dish that we've that I've done up. It, there's been dishes that haven't worked to start with, but then you go back and keep tweaking them. So I think every dish that I've, every original every idea idea I've had originally has has come out into has worked eventually. But they might have took seven, eight, nine, sometimes ten attempts to get it right, but. Um, yeah there was a pork dish that was um, with sage and onion just pork sage and onion you think simple it works but we was doing it with an ice cream so we made a sage and onion ice cream and it, on the on its own the ice cream was like weird and you could <laughs> never eat it but then with the whole dish it was incredible so that that took some work to get right but um, yeah that was a long time ago as well to be fair I haven't done that dish for a while and I guess that's the other thing that, that, again, customers, people who are interested in it don't see is the, the amount of, of cracks that you would have yeah. in it. And I, I remember, again, being in the kitchen with you and, you know, if something gets put in the past, you think, oh, that needs that or that or that. And, and it can take, I mean, like you just said, nine or ten goes to get something that you'd be happy to serve to a customer. 
Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not very often that a dish goes on the pass and you think, well, that, that's perfect straight away. I think that's probably happened once or twice in, since I've been head chef. So, and we've done a lot of dishes in that time. So, um, everything, and even if it has, then it, even if it has got on first time, I guarantee that in two months' time it will change. It will have changed a little bit. It would have tweaked somewhere. And that's why it's so important as a chef to eat your own food and we're away from the pass as well. So whenever we do a new dish, we do it at the pass with all the chefs, but then me and the sous chef will come out of the kitchen and we'll sit, not actually sit down, but we'll sit and eat the dish or take it apart. Because when you're doing it in the kitchen, you've got the noise, the smells and everything else going on around you. Whereas in a in a room outside the kitchen, it's neutral, like there's no... There's no noise pollution. There's no smell from the stock cooking on the stove. There's no, do you know what I mean? There's no, everything, it's, it's a neutral thing. It's the dining got, experience, you, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a, a dining, dining experience, yeah. So you're just concentrating on that food that you're eating. And I think it makes a massive difference eating a dish away from the kitchen. Final official burning question then. It's our little golden nugget. It's our one piece of advice for home cooks. Because it's amazing that the little things, I think, that people who, who, who cook at home, certain things that you do that you just think that could be improved by doing a really small thing to it, what would you go for? Um, again, just keep it simple and season it well. Seasoning is a massive thing for that people fail with at home. Right? You, I think everyone... No, no, I think it's a chef's thing to learn. To, uh, chefs know how to season, but... Probably the home cook doesn't and uh, taste, always taste it before you're ready to serve it. I think that's that's it really. I don't think it, and it's, it's food subjective, isn't it? So something you might love, I might hate or vice versa. So, and that's what I say to guests. If they, if you have a come in and have a tasting menu of seven or eight courses, you might not like one of them courses, but that's not because we didn't cook it right. It's because it's a personal thing. So always bearing that in mind especially if you're cooking for people that you've like friends and family like they not everybody's going to love what you cook so don't ever be offended by it if they don't like it if you like it that's fine <laughs> last question then before last question before we go you've got one choice you get a second Michelin star or Villa stay up in the Premier League what are you going for second Michelin star because <laughs> we're going to stay up we're going to stay up anyway so well, worry about if, if, if the league's cancelled maybe something like that uh, thank you very yeah. much for being the first guest it's been great yeah it's been good thank you very much for having me no it's absolute pleasure another episode of Source Material on the way next week but for now bye bye and thanks for listening